over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome to the broadcast. It's our delight to have Dr. Jeffrey Wyma on the broadcast today. If you've not been with us in the big book series and you're just joining, we're covering each book of the Bible one week at a time. And then we call on friends and some new friends who are subject matter experts that know far more than I would ever know in a particular text or field or area. And so today we're so happy to have Dr. Wyma. He's a professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary. He's taught there for 28 years. He is a sought-after speaker, and he loves to teach about the Bible in an interesting, contemporary, and practical manner. So far, he's got five books published. First of all, Neglected Endings, The Significant of the Pauline Letter Closings. I should have had you on when we did 2 Timothy. Also, an annotated bibliography of First and Second Thessalonians, and then two commentaries on First and Second Thessalonians, which is what we'll be chatting about today. Additionally, Paul, the ancient letter writer, an introduction to epistolary analysis, his sixth book, The Sermon to the Seven Churches of Revelation, a commentary and guide, and that's coming out this summer, Jeff? That's correct. That's with Baker as well. He also has contributed to a number of scholarly articles, academic essays, and book reviews. He's an active member in a bunch of societies. Uh, He leads tours to Greece and Turkey, Israel, Jordan, and Italy. I like him even more now. He conducts intensive preaching seminars for pastors and teaches, preaches, and speaks widely across the U.S. and Canada. Jeff and his wonderful wife, Bernice, have been married 37 years, we got you beat there, we're 40. You have four children and eight very cute, that's what it says, very cute grandkids. Somehow, I think you're biased. But uh, (laughs) uh, thank you for acknowledging how special they are for my wife and me. (laughs) Well, we have my executive producer is also my daughter, Hannah, who is on the other side of the glass, and she has two boys and a little girl forthcoming, and we have another little daughter, and they're a delight, aren't they? I mean, I never wanted to be that insufferable grandpa father, but I am. (laughs) Uh Well, first of all, thanks for doing this. And let's talk about the very Word of God. We are talking to Jeff about 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And let's just start first of all with, give us a context. I'm real big on context. The churches that Paul is writing at this time period and where Paul is, what he's up to, what the churches he's talking to in the Thessalonica region, what's going on in the backdrop? Well, sure. A great question uh, to begin. So Paul establishes uh, the church in Thessalonica and modern Greece, they pronounce it Thessaloniki. So pardon me if I Thessalonica, Thessaloniki back and forth, but on his second missionary journey. But permit me to uh, remind those listening that actually those names are a bit misleading because Paul was a Christian for at least 14 years, maybe 17 years, but at least 14 years before he began what 
we now somewhat wrongly call the first missionary journey. And I say that to stress the fact that Paul has not only been a believer for a long time, he's not only been involved in missions for a while, but he probably has been writing letters for a bit too. And although then First and Second Thessalonians are kind of early on the existing side of things in terms of the letters that we have from Paul, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that he's only like a newbie in the faith that right. he's never really written a letter before. So, so he founds the church on the second missionary journey, he comes roaring into town with Silas and Timothy, I sometimes referred to them as the three musketeers. They had been in Philippi, where Luke was with them for a little bit. Luke seemingly is left behind to kind of anchor and pastor the church of Philippi, meeting at Lydia's house. And then they go down the Via Agnatia, this major east-west Roman road. And they arrive in a rather big city, a kind of top 10 city of the ancient world, Thessalonica, anywhere from 80 to uh, 100,000 people. And and they're not there very long, uh, not as long as Paul wanted, because they're kind of run out of town because of opposition to the gospel. They leave town. They're encouraged to leave, and they go to Berea. They run out of Berea, and Paul is taken by Christians down south to Athens. So Thessalonica is in northern Greece or ancient Macedonia, and he goes down to the south in Athens, and he instructs Timothy and uh, Silas to join him as soon as possible. They do. And as soon as they do, Paul says to Timothy, uh, pack your bags. You've got to go back to Thessalonica. He says, probably, we can't go. There's Silas and I can't go, Paul says, because we're kind of in trouble over there. And if we go back, that'll put the Christians like Jason and so forth in trouble. And so you've got to go back, Timothy. And he does. And then Paul goes on from Athens and he goes on to Corinth. And it's while he's in Corinth for a year and a half on the second missionary journey that Timothy comes back to him, and Silas had also been sent up north somewhere else. And in addition to bringing some cash, which allows Paul to kind of give up his day job and concentrate on preaching full-time, Timothy comes with a report about the Christians in Thessalonica. And it's that report, which is mostly two thumbs up, but Timothy also says there are some concerns he highlights what those concerns are. And what does Paul do? Well, he writes a letter. And that letter now is our first Thessalonians. And then he gets some further information and he writes not too much longer what we now refer to as second Thessalonians. So there's more that I could say, but yeah, yeah, that's let me good. just pause. Let me hear from you sure. if there's something so, you'd like me to expand on. No, this is great. This is great. So we have the Acts 17 background where, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Jewish leaders have pursued Paul all the way to Berea. And that's some 90 miles. Is that correct? I mean, I tour those areas too, but I'm not always good with the kilometer to now, the mile. Berea is probably, a, it's a little bit closer, okay. but, you know, walking distance, it's a little ways away. They, they obviously had to be a little aggressive to pursue Paul to a whole other city. Well, that's my and, question to you as yeah. the expert. Why do they care? Why are they out chasing this guy? Just for a pause, I love, you know, for our folks to hear the whole paint, uh, you know, of Paul's history. He is kind of sequestered and studying and sort of in his own seminary, so to speak, after he comes to Christ. So this isn't new theology. But I'm struck by their tenacity to destroy the gospel. And why would the Jewish leaders care about Paul and what he's doing? Mm -hmm. Well, of course— we don't know 100% sure what their thinking was, but 
if we reconstruct why especially those from the synagogue or Jewish leaders were opposed to Paul, we can come up with a couple of plausible reasons. A more quote-unquote noble reason is they simply thought of Paul as a terrible heretic. I mean, coming from a Jewish faith, and of course, Paul went to the Harvard School of Judaism. He trained at the feet of Gamaliel. So, you know, he knows more than anyone, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then to have this former expert trained in the Jewish faith to proclaim that Jesus is divine. So from a purely kind of noble perspective, they thought that his views were heretical and dangerous. And that would be certainly one reason why they pursued him with vigor. But, you know, a more pragmatic reason, if we might say that, is he was he hurt them financially. He hurt them in terms of their success. We read in Acts 17 that Paul converted, quote, not a few of the leading women, which is Mm. an interesting way of saying that there were a number of wealthy women who were already kind of attracted to Judaism, but now they're going all the way to Christianity. And just like any church today, if suddenly some of its wealthier or more influential members were gone, that would get the leader's attention and, and also be part of the opposition. And so there are both, so to say, noble kind of theological reasons or also very practical reasons why Paul upset the local Jewish leaders. And then in Thessalonica, we read how they went to the Agora, that is the the downtown marketplace, Mm -hmm. and they kind of stirred up some troublemakers. And then they also got people from the city involved, right? And then so it gets expanded beyond Judaism concerns to more imperial Roman concerns, because what are the charges that they bring against Paul in Thessalonica? They're they're actually very loaded and very dangerous charges, much more than we probably would guess just from reading about it in Acts. They're accused of two things. One, disturbing the peace, and two, violating the decrees of Caesar. Mm. So let's look at the first one, disturbing the peace. Now, we might not think that's such a terrible thing. I mean, imagine for a moment that, I hate to say something controversial, but let's imagine that uh, the president of the United States comes to Grand Rapids, and for some reason I'm opposed to this person, and I go downtown with my placards, and I'm part of some kind of demonstration, and I'm arrested and charged with disturbing the peace on the local you know, television newscast, you know, Calvin Seminary professor arrested for disturbing the peace. And so you know, the question now is, I get called in front of the seminary president, and, and what's going to happen? Am I going to get fired, or am I just going to get, you know, uh, warned that we shouldn't act this mm-hmm. way? And I would say that probably in my case, the honest truth is, you know, I would be warned. Why? Because somehow we don't take disturbing the peace as all that serious a charge. However, we have to remember something that I think most of us have heard about, namely the Pax Romana. I mean, Rome aggressively marketed itself in providing peace. And so here comes this Christian leader, Paul, and he's, you know, charged with disturbing the peace. And we also know that the city of Thessalonica, in a certain sense, was kissing up to Rome. They were a little more aggressive than a lot of other cities of the ancient world in kind of networking with Rome because, hey, if we can prove to Rome that we really love them, then they in turn will do good stuff for us. Right. And that's why you can read already how the city leaders of Thessalonica kind of freaked out in a sense. They strongly reacted to this charge of disturbing the peace. And then just to finish up the other charge, violating the decrees of Caesar. There are about four or so different options there, but 
regardless of what they are, you can imagine that it would be bad to be charged with going directly against some specific command, some specific law that one of the Caesars had passed. And so, yes, Paul got into trouble with the local Jewish leaders, but they cleverly aroused the anger of city leaders and other city folks too. That's why they have to kind of leave town and the local Christians there, Jason, looks like that's where the house church is meeting at his place. Jason and some other Christian leaders have to sort of say post bond, guaranteeing that this peace disturbing uh, Caesar, decree of Caesar violating persons, and that would be Paul and Silas, don't come back. And that's why uh, Paul later had to send Timothy. And, and Paul himself in this letter says, you know, we've been trying to come back. In fact, we're praying night and day that God will allow us an opportunity to come back. And that hasn't happened yet. And so Paul instead has to resort to writing a letter to kind of respond to uh, some of the things happening at work in this uh, congregation. Let's jump into the first letter, as we call it the first letter. I'm always struck, Jeff, with the amount of Christology Paul lays down in his opening, you know, as we call it, chapter one. And it strikes me if you look at his references to Christ, to God, God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, or the divine pronoun, him or his, or, you know, or then the Holy Spirit, every verse in the first 10 verses, if I'm correct, has at least one reference to the Trinitarian Godhead. And it always strikes me, was this common fare in the early churches is where they wrote what's your t- and I, I know we're somewhat you know educated guessing i think it's more speculation but he lays a christological and trinitarian foundation in almost every letter except the personal pastorals are a little bit shorter your thoughts on that well i agree with what you've just said however i would just say it a little bit differently in other words i don't see anywhere in the letter that paul is teaching you know this kind of christology And that's what actually makes it more amazing, because it's almost like it just kind of oozes naturally from the Apostle Paul's words. And so it's not like, let me tell you about Christ, you know, and then kind of has a teaching section as if they're somehow wondering about who he is. It's just kind of striking that, again, this Orthodox Jew, you know, who all his life recited this Shema, that he just so automatically, I mean, this is a radical change in a Jewish perspective, just attributes to Jesus all kinds of qualities that belong solely to God. So, for instance, even the opening greeting, it's not just from God the Father, but in the same breath, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And something that's a lot more subtle that you'll never see in English, but, for instance, there's a prayer in the middle of the letter, a prayer in chapter 3, It's chapter 311, and and maybe folks want to look it up. And you can see in the prayer that there are two subjects. There's God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Let me go ahead and read it. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as also we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this verse does already what I just talked about. It's just kind of natural that Paul, when he prays, it's not just a prayer directed to God, the Father, but equally to the Lord Jesus. And actually, there's two prayers separated here. And so the second prayer is directed only to the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. 
But there's a kind of interesting grammatical phenomenon about 311, and that is even though there are two subjects, God the Father and our Lord Jesus, the verb is in the singular. And it's kind of striking. The verb should be in the plural to match the two subjects. And you have to be careful not to read too much into that, but it is at least suggestive that Paul so closely connects Christ with God the Father that when you get to the verb, there's only a singular verb, you know, highlighting the kind of close connection between the two. Hmm. And uh, since you asked about the Trinity, here's another passage, again, where it's not taught, but it's kind of a nice Trinitarian reference that probably could easily be missed. But in chapter four, there's a section there dealing with holiness in sexual matters and sexual conduct. And then if you look at three verses in a row, I think it's verse four, verse six, four, verse seven, and four, verse eight. So four, six, seven, and eight. And each of these verses deals with a different person of the Trinity. So mm-hmm. in four, six, we read about the Lord. And for Paul, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get verse seven about God, the father who called us. And then verse eight, it again refers to God, but then you have an explicit reference to the spirit of God who is holy, or as it's often translated, his Holy Spirit. So there's, you know, this again just oozes out of the apostle in the middle of a discussion about holiness and sexual conduct. He again references not just God, not just Jesus, but also the Holy Spirit. So back to chapter one and my questions and and high level observation. Again, I appreciate your the fine distinction between he's not teaching. Now, this is the Trinitarian Godhead and what it means, but he is on, I might say, the backstroke laden with a Trinitarian Godhead. You already mentioned verse one, we give thanks to God, verse two, always in our prayers. And then verse three, our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and Father, knowing Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Verse 5, in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It just keeps going and going and going. And I use my own little markings in the margin of my Bible that help me see things. And every reference to a divine pronoun, to God, to Christ, to Holy Spirit. And it just strikes me. And again, I step back and say, if I'm writing a group of believers, earliest letter, perhaps, this is so overflowing in his thinking. I mean, obviously the big A author, God, the little A author, Paul, who's writing these letters, God's spirit's moving him to write them. But I'm stepping back going, what was it? That, again, the Jewish leaders are chasing him down. He's teaching a Trinitarian <laughs> implicitly reminder to them before he gets into some of, let's say, the issues in the churches. And again, I'm just wondering, circle back real quick, you give us a sentence or two on why you think that was so integral in the way he opened. And again, the letter to the Corinthians is the same. Colossians is much more brief. Philippians is brief. Ephesians is very long Christology, as you well know. I'm just struck by it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to almost say what I already said okay. in the sense that, so there are other letters where Paul is writing to a more mixed audience. In other words, uh, Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, and also maybe letters that he wrote to churches that maybe there was a non-Christian Jewish presence. In other words, the church is more facing a problem of arguments or other opposition from Jews who would naturally 
downplay and reject the deity of Christ. And so in those letters, Paul, I think, is much more explicit and conscious and affirming things about who Jesus is. I think you mentioned Colossians a minute ago, and it's probably not by accident that the so-called Colossian hymn, that's chapter 1, mm -hmm. 15 through 20, and just a powerful description of Christ. So that's what you're going to get in those contexts. But here in Thessalonians, the church is predominantly Gentile. How do we know that? Well, one, since you referred to chapter one, in one verse nine, Paul says, you know, I give thanks that you Christians over there in Thessalonica, you what? You turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You can't go to a Jew, even a Jewish Christian, and say, you know, I give thanks to God you turn from idols because of their monotheism, right? That's not really a characteristic of their faith. And another important fact is that not in 1 Thessalonians or anywhere in 2 Thessalonians is there any explicit quotation of the Old Testament, because that's not really part of the problem at work, you know, in these congregations. It's different in Romans or some other places. So that's why I'm saying that the Christology, unlike some other letters where Paul is much more proactively kind of teaching or defending particular views about Christ, it seems to me that the report of Timothy, as I said, two thumbs up, pretty positive about who Jesus is and their faith in him. So Paul just kind of keeps, this is part of his, the way he speaks. This is part of the way that he thinks. You know, you you mentioned so many other letters, right? And I again, talk about how if you scratch Paul, right, this Christology oozes out of him because it's such a big part of his uh, way of thinking. Let's get into some of the particulars in the first letter. And I have my own take on sort of the main theme. And as, as you read commentators and scholars and people that have studied this for decades, it's a little less crisp in some respects because he covers such a wide, you mentioned it's not a corrective letter as in Corinth, where definitely he's correcting them on all the things they're doing wrong. This one seems to be more, well, let me just say it this way. I step back and it goes, this is about sanctification. This letter is really about parenting elder statesman apostle saying, I'm trying to nurture you and encourage you uh, with love and affection to grow in your sanctification. Now, I'd be interested in what else do you see as a primary thing, or maybe you see something very different than that. Well, you know, when I look at the big picture of the letter, I see four themes and two that are prominent in the first half of the letter and two that are prominent in the second. And those themes pop up in the second letter as well. So there is a pretty major break in the letter between chapters one, two, and three. And then you have that transitional prayer that we mm -hmm. uh, referred to a minute ago in 3, 11, 12, and 13. And then there's a kind of a big turn in four and five. So Let's begin with the first half, chapters one, two, and three. What are the two themes there? The first theme is actually where Paul is defending his integrity. Paul is defending his integrity. It looks quite clear to me, and I just say that because not every Thessalonian or Pauline scholar agrees, but this is actually a traditional position that I've defended in a variety of contexts, and that is that the opposition to the Christians in Thessalonica comes not from within the congregation, as it does say in Galatia, but comes from outside the church. In fact, Paul explicitly refers to that in chapter 2, verse 14. He talks about 
you suffering from your own, well, it can be translated your own fellow citizens. So in other words, people outside the church are putting pressure on these Jesus followers for this new faith that they have. And not surprisingly, they criticize the person whom they think is responsible for all of this crazy thinking, namely Paul. And so they kind of peg Paul as being no different than other wandering teacher, preacher types in that day. People Mm. who will say anything and do anything for people's praise and pocketbooks. And so there's an attack on Paul's character and his integrity. And although the church isn't buying into it, they're under persecution. Paul had to leave town a little quicker than he wanted to. And Paul is a little nervous that these baby Christians might buy into these charges against him. And so he spends the first half of his letter defending his character and his integrity. Now, that's important for Paul. Why? Not just because he's got a big ego and he wants everyone to love him and think good about him. No, Paul knows something very important that all preachers and Christian leaders and ultimately Christians should know. And that is the gospel, the message of the gospel is intimately connected with the messenger of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And if there's any questions about the messenger, well, that automatically leads to questions about the message. And so Paul is concerned to defend his character, his integrity, again, because he doesn't want anyone to discount, you know, the gospel that he is proclaiming. And it's at the very beginning of the letter, and that makes sense, because there's no use writing a letter to people if you're not 100% sure, you know, that they're going to listen, or if there's some lingering questions about your integrity or your character. So in the first half, a major concern is Paul is defending himself, not only how he acted, in those three plus Sabbaths that he was there that Acts 17 talks about, but also in the fact he hasn't come back and visited them subsequently. Second theme in the first half of the letter is smaller, but it's still important, and that has to do with persecution, persecution. There are a couple of places that I could draw people's attention to, but for now I'll just say that Paul writes to encourage the Thessalonians because they are under attack. Now, when we say persecution, People shouldn't think uh, jail cells and lions and those kind of things. Christianity was not an officially recognized religion, and Romans tended to confuse it with Judaism, which is, again, another reason why Jews were upset with Christians. But there was ostracization, there was ridicule, there were maybe spontaneous acts of violence, and, and so these baby Christians in Thessalonica needed to be encouraged in their faith. So First theme in the first half, Paul defends his character. Second theme also in the first half is he encourages them in their faith, in what they believe in the midst of persecution. Now we get to the second half of the letter. And it's in the second half of the letter that Paul turns to the concerns that Timothy told him about. And the first theme in the second half of the letter, or the third one overall, is the one that you mentioned already. That has to do with sanctification. And it's foreshadowed already in the beginning of the letter, as are also those other two themes I've mentioned. And I think it's helpful for people listening to this, as it was helpful for me, to make sure that we see the connection between how one thinks with how one acts. I think for me, uh, for a while, I tended to think of conversion, even my conversion to the Christian faith, as something what I believe, as if I used to believe that, and now I believe this. I used to think this way, now I think that way. And what I failed to realize, uh, at least until recently, was that obviously how I think intimately links to how I act. And so 
not surprisingly, that Paul, taking predominantly Gentile believers, right? They have no knowledge of the Old Testament, which has some important guidelines for how one ought to live ethically and morally. And they're just following the kind of morals of the pagan world of their day, especially in the area of sexual conduct, but other areas too. So no wonder Paul needs to give them further instruction, right? By how they can be more sanctified or more holy is is another possible way to translate. And so you get in the first half of the second letter, chapter four, right? A long extended discussion about how they can please God in their sex life and in their brotherly and sisterly love. And then the fourth one, maybe you're ready for me to take a break, but the fourth big one, which Thessalonians is often associated with, has to do with the end times, specifically the return of Christ and some things that will happen with regard to that. And so there are some rather large paragraphs, especially 4, 13 to 18, 5, 1 to 11, that deal with the return of Jesus. Those are at least how I see the four big themes, the four big things that are going on in actually both letters. It's helpful, very helpful. One of the other the Bible study methodology principles that I try to encourage our folks again and again and again is just observation. Look, look, look for repetition, look for restatement, look for themes. Look. And when I read a lot of Pauline literature, but most strikingly in, in these two letters, suffering, mistreatment, opposition, labor, hardship, a lot of language, uh, drove out, killed, afflictions, distress, I can endure it no longer, out of the heels of that language, and you've done a good survey, but he writes in chapter three about strengthen and encourage those people who suffer. By the time we get to the end of chapter three, he's talking primarily about that you increase and abound in love for one another. And then, of course, we have the whole rabbit trail of the one another phrases we find in Pauline literature, which is so remarkable. And then he does swing to sanctification and his illustration about sexual immorality, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I think people often miss the progress of this letter or the themes of this letter to say, the way you're going to endure all this is not through the will of the flesh, not trying to make the flesh stronger or better or being, you talked about what you think and how you behave, if I understand that correctly. Here he's saying, you know, unless you're sanctified, you're going to always, you know, I'm going to warn you about this, but The goal isn't stopping sin. The goal is to be sanctified. Right? Wrong? Clarify me? Straighten me out? (laughs) Well, I think that in 4, 1 to 2, sanctification comes under actually a larger theme. It's basically this. But walking in a way that pleases Pleases God. God, Mm -hmm. Pleases God. And that, of course, is important because we live in a culture and society that says we please ourselves. Right? The three most important people are me, myself, and I. Mm -hmm. And and this is actually a good Old Testament idea, not surprisingly, from a guy like Paul training the Old Testament. That no, 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 people are called upon to please God. And so one way that you please God is to be sanctified in your sexual life. And that's especially four, three to eight. But another way to please God is how you treat other brothers and sisters. So that's four, nine through 12. And then after the next two paragraphs that deal with the return, if you look at five, 12 to 22, 512 to 22, there's a bunch more instructions about how Christians ought to deal with each other. That's another way in which we can walk in a way that pleases God. And okay, let, let me interrupt you, Doc, Professor. Let's talk about this. Real, you got a room full of college, seminary-aged men and women. 
how do we please God without mixed motivations, without I'm doing this for the Lord when we're really doing it to curry favor or to appear spiritual or to compensate for sin we've done? Because I have this firm belief that most of us, even in our better times, we're doing things with maybe some, maybe not the most pristine motivation. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, I mean, if we go— That's a good idea. If we look at these (laughs) words—so, in other words, we look what the same Paul says elsewhere. Well, I mean, Paul's clear—he might say it more clearly in other places, but we assume that it's also found here, that the whole reason for living a holy life is not to secure salvation, but in response to salvation, Correct. right? Correct. So in other words, you know, we're so overwhelmed with what God has done for us. And if we take our plight seriously, if you really take seriously our brokenness, our need, then of course, we're overwhelmed with the solution to that plight. And then we say, now, what can we do, God? You know, yes, we can say thank you in our prayers. And yes, our worship is an expression of gratitude. But Really, God's call for humanity has never changed. Already, you know, at Exodus, uh, Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. And what kind of nation? A holy nation. And uh, So and put so some shoe leather on it for us. Put some shoe leather. Okay. I'm well, with you. And I love, okay. but how do I help people? What's different now, okay? What hasn't changed is the call to holy living. What has changed under the new covenant or properly understood living in this new age is the outpouring of the spirit already under the old covenant. You know, God would pour out his spirit. And why do we want that spirit? Well, because the spirit will enable us to do something we can't do now, namely to be a holy, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you can see that in Thessalonians. So if we go back to chapter four, verse eight. So this is the end of that section. Let, on... let, let me read it for our listeners. Okay, so yeah. he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay. So here we have an explicit statement by Paul saying, the reason you can live a holy life with regard to your sexual conduct and other areas too, but that's what he's talking about here. The reason you can be holy in your sex life is because you don't have any old spirit living within you. You have a Holy Spirit living within you. And actually, if I might appeal to the original Greek one more time, the word order here is striking because this is not how Paul normally refers to the Holy Spirit. A more literal translation is because God gives the Spirit of Him which or who is holy. To say it differently, holy here is probably not capital H because it's a name for the Holy Spirit. But it's a lower age because Paul is highlighting the character of the spirit that God has given us. And that's important because there are three other references in this whole paragraph to being holy. So it starts off in 4 verse 3. It's God's will that you should be sanctified or made holy. That's the first one. And then you get 4.4, 4, right? Uh, you control your own body or your own vessel in a way that is holy, second occurrence. And then you get verse 7, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And then verse 8, the one we've been talking about, it kind of climaxes this paragraph discussion. And you can be holy in your sexual life, not because you're so talented, not because you're so gifted, 
but because you've been empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live this way. And we do so again, not to score points with God and secure our salvation, that's impossible, mm-hmm. but we do so as a natural spirit-led response to what God has done for us already in Christ. In the same line in chapter 4, when you've talked, you've reiterated the sanctification, sort of the two parts of that, pleasing God. And, and of course, walk is a huge metaphor. You've mentioned this in the Old Testament. I mean, Proverbs is essentially the walk of the righteous and the walk of the evil, if you distill it down, and how you walk. Paul loves that phrase. And when you come to chapter 4, and again, this always sets me on my heels, Jeff, because I read this and go, Michael, you're such a mess, you know, because <laughs> he says, make it your ambition. Well, first of all, he says in verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, excel still more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that probably a purpose clause results, you will behave properly toward outsiders and not have any in need. And we've been through such a tumultuous time in uh, the last election and our you know racial tensions and LGBTQA things that are roiling around within the church. And people are just so, you talked about the three most important people. And I'm looking at this going, this is pretty calibrating. Excel more, make it your ambition, quiet life, attend to your business, work with your hands, behave properly, not just for manner's sake, but toward outsiders. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? One other uh, comment, too. There are two times in this passage where Paul says, do so more and more. Mm -hmm. And so I'd want to be concerned that people hear Paul acknowledging that these Thessalonians have already made significant progress, right? So it's not like they're down and starting at ground zero. You know, Timothy has come back and said some positive things, even about their sanctification. Paul says, great work, but... You know, I'm calling upon you now to do so more and more. And then you highlight the point that we do it not only, you know, for the sake of an expression of gratitude to God, but it's an important witness to those who are outside, right? And when the world can't see that there's a difference between, you know, those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church, well, then I think we're not living up to our calling to be distinctive because we haven't mentioned that yet. This idea of holiness is an Old Testament idea, which means to be set apart, to be distinctive, to be unique, or I like that old-fashioned translation, to be peculiar or weird. And and most of us don't want to be peculiar or weird about mm-hmm. anything in life, mm-hmm. you know. And and yet, you know, if you're a Jesus follower, you're going to stand out, and people are going to think that you've got some strange ideas and practices. Yes, they. Hopefully, they will. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump into this end times thing. And you and I probably come from a bit of a different tradition on this, so I would love to hear your your observations. The day of the Lord, thief in the night, suddenly that day, in that day the Lord uh, will come, sleep, awake, be on the alert. Give us sort of a running commentary, Jeff. Well, let me start off by maybe correcting a danger that I see all too often among, you know, the Bible-believing Christians with regard to the end times. Okay. And that is the distinction between Paul predicting and Paul pastoring, between predicting and pastoring. And I think that too many Christians get all excited about, you know, wait a minute, you know, I want to see Paul here predicting the future. I want a blueprint for what will happen. And I'm struck by the fact that 
every time Paul talks in an extended way about the end times, he does so always with a very strong pastoral focus. So let me just prove that. So, okay. so the first main paragraph that deals with the return of Jesus is 4.13 to 18. 4.13 to 18. And have people, maybe you could read it for them. What's the last word there, the concluding word in 4.18? Comfort one another with these words. You see, comfort one another. And then look at 5, 1 to 11. Here's now a second paragraph. And notice how it concludes, 5, 11. What does it say? Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. I might say it's actually the same verb as 418. You could mm-hmm. have said again, therefore comfort one another yes. or encourage. And then we haven't talked yet about the second letter, but the heart of the second letter, there's a long discussion there with all kinds of uh, challenging interpretations. But for my purposes, the end of 2, 1 to 17, there's a prayer at the end of that. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the concluding prayer of verses 16 and 17, there's not one, but two references in a noun form and in a verb form. And I don't know, Michael, if you have that there. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort, and good hope by grace, what a great line, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So in that translation, you mentioned the word comfort twice. twice. Mm-hmm. And so what I want people to understand is in all of these three extended discussions about the end time, Paul's primary purpose, again, is not so much to teach us about what precisely will happen in the future, but he has a very pastoral focus. He's trying to comfort Christians. So in 4.13 to 18, what's going on there? Well, some members of the church have fallen asleep. They've died before Jesus has come again. And this seemingly has really caused the remaining Christians who are alive to grieve about the future of these deceased brothers and sisters. And so Paul stresses, you know, he says some things about what will yet happen, but stressing that don't worry about these Christians who have already died. They won't miss out at Christ's return. They won't be at a disadvantage. They're going to share equally in the glory and splendor of Christ's return. Then you get 5, 1 to 11, you know, the day of the Lord. And it seems to me, because the day of the Lord is Old Testament language, right, that Paul has described the day of the Lord, like maybe in language of Joel and some other Old Testament prophets in a way that was pretty sobering for even the Christians who are still alive. And and some of them are worried about what's their status going to be when Jesus comes again. And so in 5.9, Paul really stresses that God has not called us to suffer wrath, but the obtaining of salvation. And so, again, he tries to comfort them, the living Christians, about Christ's return, too. And then the problem about the end times and the Thessalonians' anxiety about those end times apparently got worse. And that's why in the second letter, Paul has to talk about it yet again in a rather long, extended way in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. So I'm just going to see if you want me to go anywhere else. But at this well, point, I'm so just going to say— I appreciate yeah. the pastoral emphasis, and, and I often—it may be oversimplifying, Jeff, but I often say when you read Paul, it's not do, be, do, be. It's be, 
do, be you know, understanding your position mm-hmm. in Christ, and then behavior follows. Just as I asked you the question about motivations for good works and excelling still more, because I was raised in a tradition where works led, and your works, you know, were an affirmation of your salvation. Your works were illustrative. Your works were securing your salvation, and to understand mm-hmm. the efficacy of what Christ did in our place on our behalf instead of us. And so my works and my goodwill and even the things I'm enjoined to do in the New Testament are not to assure or somehow put a seal of approval or even prove, but they're, I like to say they're a thank you back to God. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing what he's done for me, and of course I would want to please him. Of course I would want to do what, what I mean, he told his disciples, right? If you love me, you will obey my commands. So that tension, depending on how we were raised, perhaps, or how our framework is. So all that to say, you've given us a good way of looking at this. Pastoral, shepherding, the people had died. There may have been a common thought that the day of the Lord was more imminent Jesus' language and the apostles' language, I don't think it's unfair or wrong to say that they may have thought it was their lifetime that Christ would return. And so now we've got this extended period of time, which no one knows except the Lord. These two letters, he's more precise on some of this language. Then that's why we have the difference between pre mill, post mill, ah mill, you know, so forth and so on, whether there's a rapture or not. And you and I may come out on different places on that. But this day of the Lord, acknowledging an Old Testament reference to it, do you see that as a specificity he's talking about or a generic term that's, you know, this is the time of the Lord kind of thing, an eon or something? Well, um, if I understand your question right. Sorry, it's uh, kind of a long-running question there. No, no. Um, <laughs> so I'm, no, you started off by properly saying from, you know, a theological perspective, you know, how do we view our works with regard to what God has done for us? And so I think that, of course, I say amen to everything you said there. Now, you may have to clarify for me a little bit further, but I see, again, so 413 to 18 and 5.1 to 11 are two paragraphs, and they're closely connected. I mean, they both deal generally with the same subject, namely the end times yes. and the return of Jesus, but there's a slight difference. So the first passage, 4.13-18, deals with what happens to those who have died before Jesus comes again? And the second one, 5, 1 to 11, deals with, well, what about us who are still alive? Agreed. Okay, and they seem to be a little uncertain about their salvation on that day, because I do see it referring to a specific day okay. when Christ returns. There is a judgment. And I think because the day of the Lord, because in chapter 4, Paul doesn't use the phrase the day of the Lord, right? He talks about we say in Greek, the parousia, sometimes yes, in English parousia. you've heard that uh-huh. word, right? Yeah. And that's more a Greek idea where you have a visiting delegation, and I could say something about that. But the day of the Lord goes back to the Old Testament, and and it's both a day of wonders, but also a day of judgment. And the prophets already said, too, to the Israelites, you know, I wouldn't be so excited if I were some of you about the day of the Lord, because it's not only God's the other nations were going to be punished, but even those within Israel are punished, at least those who take their covenant relationship with God for granted. And now, of course, he's writing, Paul is writing to Greeks, predominantly Gentile Christians, and the day of the Lord, with the sense of judgment, I think had made them a little insecure about their status. There are little hints of that throughout the passage. I, I already referred to verse 9. God did not appoint us to suffer 
wrath, so that's the kind of thing that would happen on the day of the Lord, but rather to receive salvation Mm -hmm. and then to pick up, you know, he died for us. That little phrase for us is super crucial, right? For what you said earlier. So, I mean, it's his death, which paid for our sins, right? We can't, and we don't have to do any works or anything like that. And then Paul, he says, so whether we live, right? Uh, Whether we're awake or asleep, In other words, whether we're living Christians when Jesus comes again or whether we're dead Christians, we'll be together. So the rest, you know, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, I envision a day when Christ will return and the dead will rise. So all the texts that talk about the resurrection, maybe more precisely 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the dead will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Those who are living will be transformed and together we experience this new heaven, and we should stress new earth. Mm -hmm. And um, I could say, uh, because in chapter four, I don't know whether you want to get into the business of the rapture, but especially there in 4, 16 and 17 are two very key verses, right? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, and this is where we get the idea of the rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then your point, comfort one another with these words. So if I go back to those two verses, so I would say that the idea of a rapture, now what are we talking about? Somehow believers will be joined with Christ at his triumphal return. So so that concept of a rapture is taught here, but what does it specifically teach? First of all, that phrase caught up is the Greek word. And then later on, of course, the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin. And it's in the Latin, you get the verb repare, from which we get that English word rapture. So, so that's kind of a long way here. Mm-hmm. The rapture here is in that verse. Now, if you permit me a couple of minutes, I would say this. I would say that what's described over in these two verses is not a secret coming in which believers will vanish and disappear to heaven for a period of time after which a tribulation he returns, but rather there's a public return of Christ that all people will hear and experience. I'm going to begin with with soft evidence. This isn't strong evidence, but The way you read it in your translation, he'll come with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. At least a rather simple, straightforward looking at those verses highlights the seemingly public nature of uh, Christ's return. Correct. But then we get the word caught up. So that word is an unusual word, and it is found a few other times in the New Testament. And it can sometimes have a negative context or it can have a positive one. So if somebody snatches something that you have, then, you know, that's another way of saying it. that's something bad. But there are other ways in which sometimes you're snatched from danger into something. So we got a mixed message about that word elsewhere in the Bible. This word, though, uh, this Greek word is used, interestingly, by secular writers of that day, often in the context of death. And I find it striking that, of course, Paul is using it in the context of death. And you got a lot of pagan writers saying things like, I'm grieving my wife or my son or so-and-so, because they were enjoying the benefits of life, but they've been, well, sometimes snatched 
you know, they've been, the Greek verb is harpagmon, they've been taken, you know, from life to death. And I simply raise the possibility, I'm whispering, I'm not shouting in the sense of certainty, <laughs> I'm just raising the possibility whether Paul is taking a key word. So his his choice of word here isn't because he's precisely defining how this is all happening, but he's making a contrast between what pagans, like his audience originally believed in the context of death and what Christians believe. So in the pagan world, we believe that people are snatched, they're taken, we can even say raptured if you want, from life to death. And Paul comes along and tries to comfort these grieving Christians and says, you know what, don't worry about your deceased ones. They're going to be, and we're going to be raptured, not from life to death, but maybe from life to life, something like that. And so I wonder if he's having a kind of a play on the word. And part of that argument, whether you're convinced by that, is whether or not you think Paul is a sophisticated writer who would who would play on that. Now, if you permit me just a few more minutes, the strongest piece of evidence that I think is all too often missing is a word that doesn't look very significant in this verse, and that is the word to meet. So if you look at that translation, after you're caught up, it says to meet the Lord in the air. And that word in Greek is a technical term, a TT. What's a technical term? Well, it's a word with a very precise or fixed meaning. And you would say, hey, Jeff, well, tell me what that precise or technical meaning is. And so this refers to a, an event that especially people in a big city like Thessalonica would have seen and experienced a few times in their life. And that's this. If a very important person were coming to your city, so like a general, certainly the Roman emperor, but somebody very important, the people in the city, the leaders would get all excited and say, oh, so-and-so, general so-and-so is coming. And what would they do? They would form a delegation party, a reception party. They would go down the road to what? Well, to meet this particular person. And by the way, who would be in that delegation party? It would be obviously the well-to-do, you know, the people who are the movers and the shakers. It'd be considered a very privileged position. And so they go down the road to meet this visiting dignitary. And then what happens when they meet the visiting important person? That person doesn't do a U-turn and go back to where they came from. That person keeps on going to the place they were originally heading, namely the city. And the delegation party goes back to the place where they came. And this is this very precise meaning always outside the Bible for this word. The word is apontasis, if anybody mm -hmm. cares to know. But anyway, it's also the word found in the New Testament, because the word apontasis is found only three times in the New Testament. One here, and that means there's two other ones. One has to do with Paul in Acts, after he pulls out his Roman citizenship card and he appeals to uh, Caesar, who's Nero, by the way. The Christians in Rome hear that Paul is coming. And so what do they do? They send a delegation party out to, same word, meet Paul. And what happens when they meet Paul? Does Paul take off and escape? No, no, no. He keeps on going to the place he was always going, Rome, the place from where the members of the delegation party came from. And the other occurrence is in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And they meet the bridegroom. And the same thing is true there. They escort the bridegroom to the wedding feast. And so this technical term, it's an image. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. And Paul uses this picture of metaphor to describe what will happen when Jesus comes again. So what's going to happen? Paul says, guess what, you suffering 
persecuted, afflicted Jesus followers in Thessalonica, you're going to be in the privileged position. You know, it won't be the movers and the shakers. It won't be your fellow citizens who are giving you a hard time about your newfound faith. No, you're going to be in this privileged position and you're going to meet Jesus, right? And then what happens when you meet Jesus? Well, according to the metaphor, Jesus doesn't do a U-turn and head back to heaven for a period of time, perhaps seven years, only to return after that. The natural understanding of the metaphor is the delegation party, namely the church, the bride of Christ, right, escorts the descending, reigning Jesus to where he was going, earth, where he establishes his kingdom on, a, I would say, a restored heaven and a restored earth. And so thank you for, I know I'm going on a little bit, and there's a bit of technical detail, but this, of course, is a very controversial verse, and I hope I said some things in there. No, it's, that it's, were, it's uh, helpful, helpful to hear your rationale. In the main, I think we're on the same page. I know we have you know, friends among the ministry here that hold different views. I happen to be pre-mill, pre-trib, a literal guy in that sense, and I know others you know, don't hold that view. I just I do find it striking. You've pointed out two technical terms, but the caught up in the air— so to follow your explanation, the delegation meets in midair, and then they come back. But he does say to be with the Lord. And so that's, you know, the delegation, you're right, he doesn't leave them behind, so to speak. So there seems to be some joining there. But the attachment of the dead in Christ are rising at this, whether it's allowed, you know, whether it's globally acknowledged sound or just to the believer? I don't know the answer to that question. But the archangel and the trumpet of God, we say pejoratively, wake the dead. They don't literally, mm-hmm. but that's the signal that those who know Christ are going to be raised from their corporal state, and then they're going to meet him in the air. So that's the point where it's, it's a head-scratcher, right? I mean, at some point, we can't know bulldog. I use the term, I can know something tentatively, dogmatically, or bulldogmatically. So, you know, <laughs> that's my sort of scale. Let, let's move on, though, and talk about the sleep part. Because in Chapter 5, continuing on this day of the Lord, again, differentiating the way you do, which is helpful, the two prayers, so to speak, two sections. The second part where he's talking about we don't want to sleep as others do, be on the alert, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, you know, keep sober. And then he moves into this sort of positional sanctification, I would call it. Maybe there's a better way to describe it. Breastplate of faith and love, helmet and hope of salvation and so forth. And then he says a fascinating term, as you pointed out, God's not destined us for wrath, Mm -hmm. but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And out of this, whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So give us a little running commentary. You already touched on it, but a little more running commentary on sleep and this idea of we're going to awake in the sense to be with him. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. So in 4.13 to 18, there's no question about sleep there. Sleep is a metaphor for death. Yep. And actually, we have the same thing today. You know, um, death sounds so harsh. You know, so we have all these euphemisms instead, right? Someone once joked, you know, they you know, they said something like, I looked in the obituary column today. There were 10 people there, but only three people died. The other seven uh, <laughs> fell asleep or went to be in glory or, right. you know, something like went that. Went home, yeah. So, yeah, went home. So that was very common in the ancient world and secular writings, and you find it in scripture. And so 
So we shouldn't be uh, too surprised about the reference about sleep referring to those who have died. And and by the way, Paul does actually say those who have died, right, in that too, right? So he says that there in 4 verse 16. So that's there. Now, when you get to chapter 5, I think there are like three different ways that sleep is used here. Yes. So that makes it a little more complicated or a little more potentially confusing, right? So the first part, I think, is verse 6. You know, we should not be like, no, no, I think I've... Yeah, no, you're right. right. Yeah. So but, yeah, not who, sleep who like others, as, but be alert. Yeah, yeah. Who are asleep. Now here, Paul is using, because you look at before darkness and light, you know, mm-hmm. Verse and five. so night and day. And so, so here he's using sleep in a more metaphorical sense, you know, that people are nothing to do with death or alive, but they're spiritually asleep, right? I mean, there are people of the day and of the light, and those are the ones who are awake, <laughs> And the opposite are, you know, of the night and those who are of sleep and so forth. So there it has more that ethical or moral connotation. But then he says, uh, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And so that second reference to sleep seems to be more literal. Paul is is using a kind of modern analogy, saying that well, people normally sleep during the nighttime. And those who do bad things, you know, typically, you know, like getting drunk, get also at the nighttime. And then he says, we're not part of that. We belong to the day. And so we have this kind of vacillation between literal night and day and literal sleep and waking, right, and spiritual awake and sleeping. Now, the third reference, though, is in 510, right? And then we have whether we are awake or asleep. And I think that the best way to look at verse 10 is to see it wrapping up or concluding not just 5, 1 to 10, but wrapping up also from 4.13 to 18. So he's got these two sections back to back. And he'll say then, whether we're awake, and that means now those who are alive when Jesus comes again, or we're asleep, and there's a little word that we shouldn't miss. We will live, do you have that maybe in your translation, you see the word together? You see the word together? Mm -hmm. And we don't need that. I mean, that's kind of excessive. You could just say we'll live with him. But no, it stresses we'll live together with him. It's a little Greek word. And the same idea of together is found if you backtrack to 417. So, you know, we're talking about the rapture and all of that. But, you know, Paul's concern is pastoral. And in order to comfort these grieving Christians who worry that their deceased believers will somehow miss out at Christ's return or be a disadvantage, it says also over here, we will be caught up. Do you see it there in your translation? Yes, we will be caught together. up together with them. Together. Correct. And then Paul does one more thing to stress it. He takes the word together, which in English we put toward the end of the sentence, and he puts it toward the front. And so what I'd like others to believe or to see is that in 510 then, it's really kind of a summary of like everything he says I've been talking about with regard to the end times. 413 to 18. So whether we're asleep, like deceased believers, or like now in chapter 5, I've been talking about those who are alive, regardless, together, right, living believers are going to be transformed, deceased believers are going to be resurrected, and together we'll be with Jesus. And then again, of course, as I've said before, that's why you can then, 11, comfort or encourage each other and build each other up with this kind of good news. Mm-hmm. Let's jump quickly to second. Thessalonians. And again, I'm struck, Jeff, with the Christology and the Trinitarian emphasis in chapter one. And this is a very short letter. 
you know, from chapter 1 through, goodness, even 2, verse 1, God, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, over and over and over and over again. Let me ask it this way. Should you and I be this way? (laughs) Should we talk about Christ so pervasively and consistently? And he's not working at this, right? I mean, this is who he is. This is what he's communicating and sharing as God's wired him. Well, that's a good self-reflective question for me uh, to ask myself. And I hope that when people hear me, to use my language earlier, I kind of bleed out, not just references to God the Father, but also to Jesus, his Son, and also to the presence and working of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I think that that happens naturally in the second letter, just like it does naturally in the first letter. We also, I might add, because we have the same unique grammatical function in the second letter in a prayer, because we've already looked at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and how that's a prayer. And we earlier said how it has that double reference to comfort at the end of the discussion of the day of the Lord and so forth. But here again, you can see that there are two references to both the Lord Jesus, right, in the first part of the first subject, and the second is God our Father. And we have the same phenomena where we have a double subject with a singular verb, Again, stressing how closely Paul links these two persons together. And I would just suggest that most of our readers take that for granted, so much so that we're blind to these references. You know, we're so used to thinking of Jesus as the divine son of God, as we yawn. And uh, I think that you're prompting me to kind of be struck again by something simple in this letter. Other places he teaches it more explicitly, but here it kind of manifests itself again, a very strong ringing Christology that permeates both letters. Again, the Pauline literature as a corpus just, it grabs me. And again, you made the point very well. And when we begin our conversation, here's a Jew's Jew. Here's a brilliant rabbinic, I call him the Ivy League, you know, Jew. He had all the right pedigree, all the right mentors, all the right credentials. And this is the one that God sends to the Gentile population. So we're, you know, it's like the overflowing theology of all that he knew from an Old Testament framework completed in Christ. And then it almost seems like it's effusive in his Again, I can't do math in my head like I used to, but we got what, less than 40 verses, 46 verses maybe. And so much of this is just, a, and I mean, that's like saying that the Bible is about God. I understand at some level, but I'm just struck with how much. And But what he talks about, even in this letter, you know, obviously the grace and peace salutation, which is so rich and we run over it so quickly, unfortunately. But he talks about faith and hope and love repeatedly give thanks to our God. It is only fitting because of your faith. It's greatly enlarged, which I think is interesting. He's seeing them grow. And the love of each of you toward one another, which, boy, what a great sign for Christians, right? That we love one another. It's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, verse 5, that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Let's stop on that one, because again, he's going to talk about suffering and affliction throughout a number of his letters. But this one seems to be related, that there is a connection here. So if I can— I'm rambling. I'm sorry, Doc. I'm rambling a little bit. I'm I'm excited. I'm going to say something about the big picture (laughs) view of of 2 Thessalonians, picking up what I said about the big picture view of 1 Thessalonians. Okay. So just to remind people that for 1 Thessalonians, we said there were four major themes, two in the first half and two in the second half. 
in the first half was DePaul defending his character, his integrity. And the second one in the first half of the first letter is Paul encouraging the church in the midst of their persecution, their affliction. And then in the second half of the letter, theme number three was sanctification or walking in a way that pleases God. And then fourthly, in the second half of the first letter was the return of Christ. Now, when you think of those four themes, two of them emerge in the second letter or three of them do with a slight twist. So chapter one of Second Thessalonians, chapter one of Second Thessalonians is really, and you can see that in a letter structure, because there's the opening that you've referred to already a few times, Michael, but then there's what's called a thanksgiving section. And so three to 12 of chapter one is something we find in all of Paul's letters. He hasn't actually begun the main part of the letter yet. He hasn't begun the body of the letter or the meat and potato section. Actually, chapter one is part of the appetizer section, if you will. Or Ben Witherington, a friend of mine, says this is a preview of coming attraction. Like to it. use yeah. a, med- a yeah. movie metaphor. So anyway, in chapter one, we pick up the theme of persecution from the first letter. And it looks like the persecution or opposition has gotten stronger and more intense. And so Paul's reaction is even more effusive. He says there in 1-4, we're not just thankful for you, but we boast about you. It's almost like Paul is running around to other Christians saying, did you hear about the believers up there in Thessalonica? Isn't that impressive? You know, and so forth. So the theme of persecution in the first letter is picked up in chapter one of the second letter. Then you get chapter 2, which ought to be viewed as going all the way to verse 17. So it goes at 2-1 all the way to 17, and it picks up the theme of the first letter, namely further questions about the return of Christ, and more specifically, the way that the believers there were, frankly, kind of freaking out about the day of the Lord. They were unduly alarmed that Paul has to again try to comfort them. So that picks up that other theme of the return of Jesus. But then something new is chapter three, and three can be generally picked up under the theme of sanctification or walking in a way that pleases God. But there's one specific form of that that comes out in a new way in the second letter, even though there are two hints of it in the first letter. And that has to do with a problem of idleness, a problem of, well, some Christians, or at least people claiming to be Christians who are sponging off of the love or the generosity of other believers. And this is a problem that's hinted at, or, well, maybe it's mentioned twice. I can give you the references in the first letter. So I can, I can see that it was a problem from the get-go. It was, yes. a, it was something that Paul talked about already on the second missionary journey when he was there for a too short time. And then he had to deal with it for a second time in the first letter And now the problem, instead of getting better, gets worse. And so he has a rather long, extended discussion about what should we do to discipline? That's a whole other tough subject, right? How can we properly discipline those who are are refusing, right? In an ongoing, Paul says, I'm not talking about people who are laid off or people who are handicapped and can't find employment. But he says, people who do not wish to work, who do not want to work, right? And he talks about the importance of how he provided an example, right? That's why we work with our hands to provide an example for self-sufficient work. So anyway, there's some uh, interesting countercultural attitudes toward work and employment that emerge there in chapter three, broadly under the heading of sanctification, pleasing God, but much more narrowly dealing with the subject of, of labor and work. 
often make the observation that, you know, the more, and I'm not, you know, piling on entitlement programs entirely, but the more entitled we are, the less incentive we have. And, you know, if I have a steady income of any kind, I don't have to work in fear. But if I don't have, you know, my obligations, I got my daily, you know, electric bill, water bill, uh, et cetera, to pay for, like all Americans have, uh, I need to get to work. And the irony of that, as you pointed it out, he says, follow our, our example, our two posts, what we did. We weren't undisciplined. We worked. We didn't come in and mooch. We labored and hardship. And I love the way he ties that together night and day. Why? So we wouldn't be a burden to you. And then he continues it as a model for you that you would follow our example. And if you're not willing to work, don't let them eat. I tell the story of one of the first church work days I ever organized when I was in my 20s. And we had these little sign-up sheets in the uh, building. And it was everything from you know mulching flower beds to trimming hedges to some more involved things. And we had coffee and donuts and bagels and whatnot. And how for an hour, some people just, you know, sip coffee and uh, had orange juice and bagels. And, and how some people, they were there, boom, they were at work. And I learned so much about our little congregation in <laughs> a very short order, you know, <laughs> but well, it's interesting, sorry, you know, it's, it's just interesting that this is a timeless lesson of there's value in work and there's value in sweat equity and so forth. Well, I could just quickly say, you know, since we've affirmed earlier the importance of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Yes. So even though we've done a deep dive into First and Second Thessalonians, we can't forget what the rest of Scripture may say about any of these topics we've been discussing. And so we should remind ourselves that Adam and Eve were working in the garden before the fall already, right? So there's nothing inherently evil about work. I mean, yes, in a fallen world, work can have some painful attributes to it, but there's nothing inherently evil about work itself. And there are lots of passages, too, about how how the lordship of Christ, you know, the rule or authority of Christ is much more than just my individual life as a Jesus follower or even our communal life as a church, but it extends to all of life, all of society. I'm thinking of Jesus' words, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And anyway, the idea that we who are followers of Jesus can serve Jesus in our labor. You know, if we think about work from that kind of perspective, how can we demonstrate that Christ is Lord of my life and my job? Well, that would be different than certainly an attitude of the world where T-G-I-F, right? You know, uh, it's like you can't live during the week and thank goodness or otherwise, you know, it's Friday. and, And sometimes Christians, I think, get sucked up into that worldly attitude toward work and and so this passage can be, especially in the light of other passages of Scripture, uh, maybe a helpful corrective to that way of thinking. Absolutely. All right, Doctor, give us a thumbnail summary, a 25-word-ish of First and Second Thessalonians as you see it and how we might apply it in our lives. Oh, that's not fair. 25 words. That well, come on now. This is that's, you know. imp- that's impossible for a guy whose nickname during high school was Motor Mouth. And uh, <laughs> on a canoe trip, on a canoe trip, a, a teacher said, why, Ma, why don't you stick your head under the water and use your tongue as a propeller? Ooh, so, yeah, so, and you remember that one. <laughs> I remember that one. So. Sorry. Yeah, that one stung. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll give well, you 30. I'll give you 30. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm I, a generous I guy. I, I, I would say that. Paul writing to newbie Christians with whom he has a good relationship 
applauds them for the gains that they have made, and yet also encourages them and challenges them to live a holy life as they prepare for and are anticipated for the glorious return of Christ. I think you did phenomenally well. <laughs> Dr. Jeffy Wyma, he is a professor at Calvin Theological Seminary. He is a uh, Greatly published, widely published. It travels abroad to uh, countries that Cindy and I love so much, Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, and so forth. Check him out uh, in the show notes below. Jeff, thanks for your time. Thanks for your labor and to put these in print and uh, encourage our folks to check out your, your publications, your articles, and help us all to grow in our knowledge and application of God's Word. Thank you, and blessings on you and your important ministry, too. Thanks, brother. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.